Acts 5, verse 26. Let's quickly recap the text leading up to this moment because we are going to be jumping into a story kind of midstream. Even though the church was warned by the religious establishment not to speak nor teach in the name of Jesus, the apostles blatantly defied these warnings and the cause of Christ, as witnessed by us, spread all the more. And Luke tells us that the impact of their defiance and continuing to teach and preach the name of Jesus was that it was no longer just impacting or just isolated to the city of Jerusalem, but Luke is clear that the effects are beginning to spread to the surrounding cities because of this. As we approach the end of Acts 5, a line of demarcation has been crossed. A line has been crossed that now prompts the religious leaders to take action. They can no longer sit by and allow these apostles to defy their warnings, to see this movement continue to spread. And so, they go in and they arrest all 12 apostles. They're thrown into prison to stand trial for insurrection. But as they're awaiting to be brought before the Sanhedrin at first daylight, We're told by Luke's account that things take an interesting turn. In the middle of the night, an angel of the Lord spawns a prison break. These men are busted out of the pen. They're freed. We don't know how exactly. I'd like to think maybe they were teleported. Maybe they walked through a wall. Maybe the guards went into a divine slumber. We don't know exactly how they they were freed from prison, but this angel gives them specific marching orders, a specific command. I'm breaking you out of prison. Go in the morning to the temple and keep preaching. Keep preaching. Well, verse 26, the captain. He went with the officers after discovering that the jail cell was empty, that these men were no longer there, recognizing that they're back teaching the people. They sent officers. They brought them back to the Sanhedrin without violence, for they feared the people, lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. We touched on this last Sunday, but we should remember that none of this story, none of what's taking place in the lives of these 12 men was occurring outside of Jesus's direct and providential control. Sure, Jesus freed these men from jail. He freed them from prison, but the angel, what did he do? He sent them back to the temple to preach. You see, Jesus didn't bust them out of jail to give them a way of escape. The very order to go back and preach in the temple in the morning would have inevitably, there's no doubt, would have landed them back right before the same group of men. You see, Jesus freed them because he wanted to boost their confidence that no matter what situation, what circumstance, what jail, what trial, what tribulation they were, were to face in the future, that they could always trust. You know what? We're right where Jesus wants us. Because if we weren't, he could just send an angel and we could be busted out. Jesus has at his disposal supernatural resources so I can always trust that no matter where I am, I'm right where Jesus wants me to be. Once again, Luke, he sets this scene in order to hammer home the reality that this new movement was creating ripples throughout Jewish society. Though the captain, the officers, went to arrest the apostles again, It's clear that when they went in to do this, they were very careful, right? The last thing they wanted to do was to arrest these men and incite some kind of a a mob riot. They, They feared that they might be stoned. Not only did people appreciate the teaching of the apostles, not only had many of them uh, responded to the teaching of the apostles, but they all respected the teaching of the apostles. You see, there was nothing within the culture that saw what these men were doing as being wrong. And so going and rearresting them and, and the presence of, of this mob of people, they were careful. They respected the circumstances. They say, you have filled Jerusalem, the high priest, with your doctrine. <laughs> what a wonderful accusation. I mean, I mean, really, 
of all the things for them to levy, all the charges to levy against these men, to say right from the beginning, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine. I can see them kind of looking at each other saying, yeah, that's right, we did that? That's awesome. This word doctrine is the Greek word diadache, which means the things which are taught, and the Greek word filled means to cause something to abound. This means that it was through the teaching of God's word and believers practically living out their faith that the gospel of a resurrected Jesus it had taken over the city. And this was a reality that the religious leaders couldn't deny. And accusing them, they're affirming that they're being very successful at what they had been called to do. And notice now the next accusation. You intend to bring this man's blood on us. Now, as we've mentioned in our examination of Peter's previous sermons, the apostles were clear that the Jewish religious establishment had played a pivotal role in Jesus' trial, his arrest, his execution. You see, Peter never let these men off the hook, never allowed them to, to shift blame to the Romans. No, Peter was clear over and over and over again that the religious leaders were responsible, as were the people. I am sure that the high priest, he brings this to their attention in an attempt to deflect responsibility, which in and of itself is kind of ironic, isn't it? Because if you will recall, in Matthew chapter 27, verse 25, as Jesus is standing there with Pilate, that what did the religious leaders cry out? They asked that his blood be upon them, and what else? And their children. Be upon us and the next generation. And now, that there are men putting Jesus' blood on them? They're kind of like, whoa, wait a second. But this is what they asked for. Oh, the irony. But you know, I think there's another way to read this. Did the apostles want Jesus' blood to be on them? Absolutely. Did the apostles want Jesus' blood to be on the apostles? Absolutely. You see, the, the, the truth is that the only way that a man can be saved is for Jesus's blood to be on them. You see, I think there's part of the accusation here of like, listen, you're trying to blame us for this. We don't appreciate it. All the while they had asked that they would be blamed for it. But I think in and of itself, there's this accusation that you're trying to get us to be saved. You want his blood to be on our account. You want his blood to cover us. Your whole purpose in all of this is that not only would the people find Jesus, but that we would accept him too. I think the accusation is accurate. Don't forget what Paul would say in Romans 3. He says, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom, and note, whom God set forth as propitiation by his blood. That's covering through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God has passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. You see, understand why God's wrath will be spared you. Because when God looks at your sin, when he examines your life, he sees only but a covering, the blood of Jesus. Just as the angel of death and the exodus were to pass over the house and spare judgment of the firstborn because of the blood, put on the doorpost. In the same sense, it is the blood of Jesus, this propitiation for sins that causes God to pass over you, that you have been covered by the blood of Christ. And I love that because when God examines your life and you're like, oh man, that's dangerous. Because you're looking at the sin. You're looking at your struggle. You're looking at your, your frailty and your insufficiencies. But when God looks at you, please note, he sees none of those things. He sees the blood of Jesus. 
that you have been bought, that you have been forgiven, that you have been cleansed, that you have been set free. You, from the perspective of God, are righteous. May we live the very way that God views us. Now, before we move on, please note what's admitted by the high priest. And I don't know if you, if you caught this as we were reading through it, but never once, never once, and his entire accusation, does he use the name Jesus? Did you see that? This man's blood on us. He, he refuses for his lips to use the word Jesus. And this fact, from my estimation, seems to present for us a man who at this juncture was doing everything he could to resist God's work in his life. You know, the name of Jesus has power. And in this instance, he did... He is so resisting what Jesus was doing. He was so resisting what these men stood for. He was so resisting it all. He couldn't even bring himself to utter the name, the name of Jesus. But Peter, we're told, and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, and I'm sure it reverberated through the room. You're not gonna use his name, but I will. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree, him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, and we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. In essence, there's really nothing new to Peter's response from the one he initially gave the same group of men back in Acts chapter 4. He's telling them that not only did they have an obligation to obey God more than men, but that as witnesses to these things, it would be impossible to detach themselves from the impact that Jesus had made on their lives. He, he's saying, like, you're not asking us to not do something. You're asking that we no longer be something. We're witnesses of this. This is who we are. And thus, by who we are, it manifests what we do. We can't separate ourselves. We can't detach. We've witnessed the resurrection. We've witnessed the resurrected Jesus. He's taught us and he's ministered to us. It's an incredible thing that they're saying. And note that Peter, in this whole process, he's not providing a defense. He's not actually giving a defense here, nor is he appealing for mercy. Peter is simply presenting an explanation for their actions. We're doing what we're doing because, well, A, we're going to obey God more than men, and B, we're witnesses to these things. So, like, this is why we're doing it. It's not a defense. It's not a plea to mercy. It's just an explanation. Again, I believe these men are standing before these religious leaders for one simple reason that God still wanted the gospel preached to them. Again, over and over and over again, they have had Jesus reveal himself. And ultimately, it's because they would face judgment. You see, God, in his very heart, in his very being, in his very essence, he will reveal himself and he will woo humanity and he will demonstrate his love over and over and over again so that no man will be able to stand at the judgment seat and say, I was never given a chance. How would this be fair? I was never given an opportunity. No, you see, Jesus is constantly, even in this moment for you, he's speaking through the darkness and to your heart saying, I have a better way. I have a better life for you. Forsake this world and follow me. Let me heal you. Let me forgive you. Let me set you free. And we have a choice to accept it or to reject it. And these men were rejecting it. You know, there's a real difference between being a man pleaser versus being a God pleaser. And when it's all said and done, let me just exhort you with this one consideration. Whose opinion of you really matters most? I mean, when it's all said and done, is, is your boss's opinion of you what really matters most? I mean, it matters. Don't get me wrong. But you're not going to stand before your boss one day to give an account for your life. Like, 
your boss doesn't hold your eternal destiny in his hand. And your buddies, does their opinion matter? Well, sure, in some regards, they're your friends. You, you want to be accepted by them. There's a relationship there. But when it's all said and done, is their opinion of you, does that really matter? You see, the truth, friend, is that it's God's opinion that ultimately matters. What God thinks of you, his opinion of you, your reputation before him, in the long run, is the only thing that carries any weight. Though the Bible speaks at length when it comes to submission, understand submission is never presented in Scripture as an absolute. Yes, we're commanded to submit to government, church leadership, parents, bosses, wives, husbands, but there's always one caveat, that God's commands supersede the directives of men. And he says, Peter says, we are his witnesses to these things. Now what things? You see, as he's continuing, we find here another uh, examination, another declaration of the essential positions that we find in the first century church. Like, this is what they believed. These things they were witnesses to. And so we find a, the position of the church, which reaffirms the veracity of the historical account that Jesus had first been murdered by hanging on a tree or crucifixion. But after his murder, the God of their fathers, the God of Israel, raised Jesus up or resurrected him and then exalted him to the right hand to be prince and savior. So, and this is the purpose of all of this, that Jesus and he alone might give repentance, we find that, and the forgiveness of sins. Peter is telling them that this was not only the doctrine that they taught the people, but was an actual literal examination or declaration of events they had practically experienced. And then Peter validates his experience. Like, we know these things to be true. We're witnesses. We've experienced this forgiveness. We've experienced the forgiveness of sins. We've experienced repentance. We've experienced salvation because it's been attested by the fact that we have been filled by the Holy Spirit whom God gives to those who obey him. And understand that what Peter's saying by saying Jesus' favor of God and our salvation found through Jesus, it's all been confirmed. God has placed his seal of approval on all that has happened because, and he points to this one singular event, the Holy Spirit was poured out. And understand, the religious leaders would have gotten this imagery. They would have understood the implications of what was being said. We'll see this by the reaction to this sentence. Because in the Old Testament, it was a unique thing when the Holy Spirit was poured out. It didn't happen often. Most of the time, it was nationally. Very rarely was it individually. But it speaks of God's favor when the Spirit would be poured out, often accompanied by fire. At the, 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 uh, the dedication of the tabernacle, later the dedication of the temple, that God was pleased with what was happening in order to validate his pleasure, to demonstrate his pleasure, he would pour out his spirit on the people, on the nation, on an individual. And so when Peter's like, Jesus died, he rose, he's been exalted, the purpose is for repentance, forgiveness of sins, of which we are witnesses, and we've been filled with the spirit of God, which means God's behind it all. And this sends them off the cliff. Because when they heard this, verse 33, they were furious and plotted to kill them. <laughs> the scene, it quickly moves from being tense to now being explosive. This phrase, they were furious, indicates they were literally sawn through. The religious leaders were rent with vexation over the implications of what these 12 men were saying, that they had the pleasure of God and not them. You know, it's a reality that the gospel of Jesus, it either produces a response of contrition that leads to repentance or real life change, or the gospel of Jesus produces a fury of active resistance. It's clear here that a chord had been struck. And since they were resisting and rejecting Jesus, since they refused to accept the only logical manifestation of what was happening in their own heart is that they lash out in fury. And sadly, 
the results of this conviction was that they immediately plotted to kill them. Well, we're told that one in the council stood up, a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in respect by all the people. And Gamaliel commanded them to put the apostles outside for a little while. Now, it's interesting that Luke mentions here that one in the council, which we've already been told was dominated by the liberal Sadducees, this left political party in Israel, that one in the council stood up, a Pharisee. Do you realize that that what makes this kind of interesting is that this is the first time we have mention of the Pharisees in the entire book of Acts? You know, if you're reading through the Gospels, it's it's evident that who was the chief enemy or, or what group of people stood in opposition to Jesus more than any other group over and over and over again, all the way up until the end. And the Gospels, the main opposition to Jesus was the Pharisees. So they dominate the Gospels, and then we get to the book of Acts, and guess who's really missing? The Pharisees. Like in regards to the resistance of Jesus, it was the Pharisees. But now in regards to the resistance of the church, It's the Sadducees. They've been dominant in the first five chapters. It's only in this moment that we're given any reference of a Pharisee opposing what was happening. And you know, it's kind of how I think, but we kind of have to consider, like why in the world are the Pharisees who were so opposed to Jesus absent from the first five chapters of the book of Acts? Why had they disappeared? I believe the reason that we don't have the Pharisees opposing the church in Acts is that many of them actually converted and were now followers of Jesus. I mean, 3,000 at the temple, the day of Pentecost, convert. And then Peter preaches again, and another 5,000. We kind of have to, like, who are these people? Like, where they come from? Okay, we know they're Jews, but from where? From what? Like, we're not given a lot of information about them. I'm of the opinion that many of them were Pharisees. You see, though they had resisted everything Jesus had done, everything Jesus had stood for, there was one bit of evidence validating who Jesus was that they could not discount. They're involved all the way up through his crucifixion. But then something happens that not even the Pharisees could resist and that was the resurrection of Jesus. Something that they knew was true, something that they knew happened, something that they were aware was covered up. Don't forget it, it was the Pharisees that believed in the resurrection of the dead, whereas the Sadducees didn't. Interesting that the Pharisees would accept the resurrection of Jesus, whereas the Sadducees, who rejected the notion entirely, would still remain uh, ambivalent towards it. Now, before you accuse me of pure speculation, and I know that's running through some of your brains, like, (laughs) okay, cool theory. (laughs) In the process of this, I will point out that there seems to be some biblical evidence to validate this particular position. In Acts chapter 15, verse 5, that's the next place, by the way, that you find mention of the Pharisees. Luke tells us that some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed, rose up. And in Acts 15, we have this debate that takes place within the church, within the church community, within the church community there in Jerusalem. So we have two different arguments, two different positions. Paul will argue one end of it and some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed. Pharisees who had converted. Now though by Acts 23, which is 25 years later, the Pharisees will have reemerged as a pervasive force in Jewish politics. I am convinced that at this point in history, the party in and of itself had largely abandoned Judaism and were now followers of Jesus. All well, except this one man, this one Pharisee named Gamaliel, and presumably all of the people that were kind of in his camp or under his tutelage, which according to Acts 22 verse 3, is actually includes the Apostle Paul. Now the Talmud and the Mishnah, which are extra-biblical rabbinical writings, claim that Gamaliel 
was the grandson of a renowned Hebrew scholar by the name of Rabbi Hillel. I won't bore you with the history. You can look it up on your own. All that to say, though, even amongst the Sadducees, it explains why Gamaliel was a teacher of the law held in respect by all of the people. Now, following Peter's bold defiance and the reality that he continued to present the truth of the gospel, even to a group of men bent on resisting it, the Sanhedrin explodes into fury and an act of unfettered, unbridled emotion, this group of respected uh, elders, religious leaders are now just out of their minds. They're foaming at the mouth. They're like actively plotting how they're going to kill them. I say we rip off his arm. Well, I say we take him out and hang him. I say we crucify him, grab some stones. Like they're just freaking out. And Gamaliel kind of pauses and he's like, yo, we're told that he commands that the apostles are removed, which is interesting because they explode in fury, plotting to kill them. And the disciples, the apostles, these 12 men are still standing there kind of like twiddling their thumbs, kind of like kicking their heels, like, hey, we're still here, hello, you're going to kill us, that's not cool, do we have a say? And Gamaliel's like, well, can someone get these guys out of here so that cooler heads can prevail? And so Gamaliel takes the stage, and we're told that he says to them, verse 35, men of Israel, take heed to yourselves what you intend to do regarding these men. For some time ago, Theodos rose up, claiming to be someone. A number of men, about 400, joined him. He was slain, and all who obeyed him were scattered, and it came to nothing. And after him, Judas of Galilee rose up in the days of the, the census. He drew many people away after him, but he also perished. And all those who obeyed him were dispersed. And now I say to you, keep away from these men. <laughs> Leave them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you be found to fight against God. Now, Gamaliel's reasoning was twofold. First, if this was nothing more than a work of men, then it would die a natural death. And to validate his position, Gamaliel points to pr two previous examples whereby Theodos and Judas of Galilee, they rose up claiming to be someone. They gained a following, but when it was all said and done, because God wasn't behind it, they were ultimately scattered. It came to nothing. And Gamaliel's logic was that if a work of man done in the name of God proves to be successful, then one must logically accept that God was indeed behind the work. Basically, Gamaliel argues that success validates authenticity. If it comes to something, well, God's behind it. We should accept it. But ironically, his logic isn't true. Like for practical reasons, we know in a lot of senses that success doesn't validate authenticity. Taco Bell's very successful, but it is not authentic Mexican food. People love it. Like, I love the double XL grilled stuffed burrito. But it's American food. It's, it's not Mexican food at all. Like, it's very successful in its branding, but it's not authentic. See, success doesn't always mean authenticity. More practical example, Islam. Islam has proven very successful, and yet we don't consider Islam to be a genuine work of God. You see, according to Gamaliel, you'd look at Islam and say, well, God's behind it because, well, there's like a billion Muslims in the world. It's very successful. So God must be behind it, but that's, that doesn't stand up to the sniff test. Now, his second bit of logic is that if this was a work of God, then there was nothing that they would be able to do to stop it. And to this point, Gamaliel is 100% correct in his assessment. For if this was a new work of God, he reasoned it would be unwise to oppose and prudent in how they handled it. His logic, for who can fight against God? This would be silly. And over the centuries, in countries across the world, many have tried to oppose Christianity. Many have tried to stamp out the Christian faith, the followers of Christ. 
only to watch in their efforts the gospel metastasize and spread all the more. We'll see this coming up in the next couple chapters. Now, tragically, though Gamaliel was an expert in the scriptures, he was your prototypical fence sitter. His entire approach, did you kind of catch the overarching aspects of it? His whole approach was, let's just wait and see. Before we conclude one way or the other, let's just sit back and observe. But we should think, like, really, at this point, what would he be waiting for? Like, what further evidence did Gamaliel need? The scriptures which he knew pointed to Jesus. Prophecy which he knew pointed to Jesus. The three-year ministry of Jesus presented more than enough evidence for a man like Gamaliel, not to mention the resurrection was undeniable. And yet he still sat on the fence, waiting for more, more evidence. The author of Hebrews says that today is the day of salvation. If you're not a Christian today, can I just ask you a very simple question? You know, oftentimes when you're having a a conversation with an individual trying to figure things out, uh, the, the onus is placed on the believer to provide an explanation for, well, why are you a Christian? But let me reverse that. May I ask you why you aren't a Christian? Like, really? Like, what are you waiting for? Like, is there not enough evidence that Jesus was a historical character, that he died on the cross, and that he rose from the dead and ascended to God. Like, is, are you still chewing on that? Because we can talk afterwards. I can remove that for you. I can present you a lot of evidence for that. Is there not enough evidence yet that he loves you? Like, are, are you waiting for him to do something else to demonstrate how much he loves you, how much he cares for you, what his thoughts are towards you? Like, is the cross, was that not enough? Like, are you waiting for something else? Like, what are, what are you waiting for? You see, I, I, I'd like to ask you, why aren't you following Jesus? He's that good. He's that awesome. Like, why wouldn't you? Now, that's not to diminish that some people don't have genuine hurdles, but my question is, is pinpoint them and then work through them. David Guzik challenged, made this challenge in his commentary on this passage that Gamaliel proposed the test of time, but it would be wise for us to consider the test of eternity. And I think that's true. Well, so they agreed with him. And when they had called for the apostles and beaten them, they commanded that they should not speak in the name of Jesus. And they let them go. So they departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. And daily in the temple... And in every house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. Though everyone in this council agreed with Gamaliel. They're like, okay, that's cooler heads have prevailed. Our emotions have subsided. We're looking at this logically. We don't want to cause a riot. All right, we're, we're with you, Gamaliel. But still, it seems that there was a consensus that they couldn't just let them go, that something needed to be done to reinforce that these men were not to speak in the name of Jesus. And so let's give them some repercussions. Luke tells us that these 12 apostles were beaten. They were beaten. In the Greek, we find the word derero, which means actually to fillet. It kind of sends, sends some creepy feelings up your back, doesn't it? Like if it was translated and they were filleted. Ugh. Like a fish? Like a steak? Like how were they filleted? Well, this phrase seems to indicate that these men were sentenced to 39 lashes using a Roman flagrum, or what we kind of commonly refer to as a cat of nine tails, very similar in the manner that Jesus had been done. So literally, these guys are taken out. They were sentenced to 40, but to be gracious, they brought it back to 39. Like, thanks, I guess. 39, 40. At that point, I don't know if I'm feeling much. But the whole concept is that this, this whip had, had bone and glass and rock fragments weaving through it so that when it hit, 
it stuck, and when it was pulled, it ripped flesh. Literally, they just kind of, they were beaten, but they were filleted because that's kind of what you would conclude their back to look like at that point. So they're, they're taken into this kind of a dynamic. They're filleted, they're beaten. Imagine the reaction when the angel didn't show up again. Like, I like to think of it in this sense. Like, don't forget, the night before, they're, 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 they're thinking that they're going to stand before the Sanhedrin and possibly face death. And in the middle of the night, an angel breaks them out of jail and then tells them to go and preach again. And they're like, okay, cool. Jesus is on board. We're good to go. Even when they're rearrested, they're like, he's in total control. We're good. Angel time. Go be filleted. And you can see as they're being tied to the post, they're looking like, where's that angel? Is that angel coming? Where's that angel? What's happening? After the first lash, at what, what point did they finally kind of come to the conclusion that the angel wasn't coming? Like, not only do they experience here the first trial of physical altercation, but I think, also, there's a disappointment that they're experiencing here. They were beaten viciously. They were threatened severely. They were released. And in spite of all of these things, what was their reaction? Luke tells us they departed rejoicing that they had been counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. You know, more often than not, when we find ourselves suffering for the cause of Christ, we are inclined to sulk and to seek pity. Now, <laughs> we don't suffer for the cause of Christ like these men. I mean, our boss tells us that we can't read our Bible at lunch, and we're like, I'm suffering for Jesus. Or someone flicks us off as we're driving down the road because we've got an ichthus on the back of our car, and they yell out, Christian, you all stink at driving, and we're like, persecution. <laughs> like, I mean, really, let's be honest, in our culture, when it comes to persecution, like, when it ha like we're kind of pansies about it. Like, we sulk. I just suffered for Christ. We call up our friends. We tweet out. Pray for me, hashtag the persecuted church. Some of us might even demonstrate anger. Jesus, why are you doing this? Or disappointment that Jesus didn't provide a way of escape or didn't intervene when we know he could have. Do you not love me? Do you not care? I'm suffering as we're sitting in a Lazy Boy, sipping on a Coca-Cola. For you! <laughs> Switch over to the Masters. Back to the ball game. Jesus! Like, our culture, it's just weird. You see, these men, they really suffered, didn't they? The whole situation, their lives are at stake. And then they're filleted. Ooh. And they're maybe a little disappointed. But we find a resolve, don't we? They didn't complain. They didn't question God's love. That God was, why weren't you there? They didn't even seek the attention of others or sulk and pain and discomfort instead. And this reaction is otherworldly, man. They rejoiced. Literally, the language presents here that as they're leaving, they're threatened, they're filleted, they're threatened, they're let go. And before they're even out of the room, they're giving each other high fives, they're praising God, they're singing glory to God on the highest, great things he has done. I can imagine the Sanhedrin are like, these people are out of their minds. To rejoice after this? I mean, what can we do? They're singing as they're leaving. It's unreal. And note, they weren't singing because, well, it could have been worse. 
I mean, it wasn't as though they were rejoicing that the motivation of their, of their joy here was the reality that, well, their lives had been spared. We're told that they rejoiced because they saw their suffering as validation of a much greater reality. See, the word we have translated, were counted worthy, literally suggests that their joy was found, not because they were released or because they were, we thank our lucky stars, it could have been bad, but they rejoiced in the reality that they had been judged worthy. That's what we were, were counted worthy, to be judged worthy by God, to have been afforded the honor and privilege to suffer for the sake of Christ. These men, for them, persecution was seen as validation. I want to challenge you to maybe re-examine how you see opposition in the persecution of culture because for them, they saw it as validation. Suffering was viewed as being an indicator of God's pleasure and the way that they were handling themselves. It was a badge of honor, proof that they were really being the witnesses that Jesus had called them to be. I would reference for you John 15, verses 20 through 21, 1 Peter 3, 2 Timothy 3, Philemon 1, over and over and over again. We're told, full disclosure, that following Jesus doesn't make life better, more rewarding, but sometimes more difficult. That persecution is part of the DNA of the follower of Jesus. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecute me, Jesus told them, it, was in, it wasn't in the fine print. It was fully out there that they will also persecute you. According to the Pew Research Center and corroborated by Open Doors Ministry, 75% of the world's Christians today live in population centers with severe religious restriction. Though it's difficult to pinpoint the exact number of Christian martyrs, you know, the yearly number of those martyred for their faith, some studies will say it's 100,000, other studies will say maybe it's only like 1,200. I've actually given you several links at c316.tv to read through it all and kind of figure it out on your own. But either way, regardless, one thing's clear. According to the Berkeley Center for Religion, is located at Georgetown University, they say that more Christians face more persecution in more countries today than any other religious community. You know, in discussing Christian persecution, most pastors would point out and, and give you example after example of where Christians are being brutally slaughtered, where churches are being burned to the ground, where believers are forced to meet in secret, where pastors are being imprisoned for their faith in Jesus today. It's true. I mean, we could spend the next hour, example after example after example after example. And while we need to be aware that we live in a minority of believers who can worship God without fear of martyrdom, and we should indeed pray for the persecuted church, I want to take, in closing here, a different approach when it comes to persecution. Instead of giving you examples that are kind of like outlandish and far-fetched and hard to wrap your brain around practically, let's bring it home. Because I believe the American church is beginning to see the emergence of an entirely different type of persecution. Though our society was founded on the freedom of speech and the freedom of religion, there is clearly a growing tide of opposition to the freedom of religious speech. Freedom of speech, freedom of religion, but not the freedom of religious speech. In an attempt to silence and diminish Christian beliefs in the public square, many, and I'll use the phrase loosely, but secular progressives, abandon the free and honest exchange of ideas for instead a disingenuous mischaracterization of Christians and our biblical position. You see, instead of disputing the merits of truth, many who resist the gospel today would like to unfairly attack the speaker of said truth, brand him or her as being intolerant, or worse, bigoted, all the while avoiding any form of honest, respectful discourse. This is the society that we live in. I'll give you a couple of quick examples. If you speak out in favor of traditional marriage, you'll be unfairly branded a bigot, and hateful towards gays. Though you haven't taken that position, 
or haven't said that, by taking a position of being pro-something, you'll be branded as anti the opposite. As we've seen this past week, you can even lose your job if you make a donation to a pro-traditional marriage organization. If, as a Christian business owner, you take a pro-life stance concerning plan B, and thereby refuse to include it in the employee health plans that you're paying for, you will be accused of being anti-women and ostracized from the business community. You have no right to own a business. If you have a belief and communicate a belief in an intelligent design of the universe, academics today and in today's universities, they bypass genuine scientific debate of the facts and will instead brand the believer of these, of, of these things as an individual who's an intellectual dunce, unfit for academia at large. You see, instead of a conversation on the merits of each of these positions and an allowance for conflicting moral beliefs in a free society, Christians are verbally attacked and intentionally mischaracterized through the misinformation of dishonest debate. I believe in traditional marriage. Well, you hate gay people. No, man, like where are you getting that? Like I, I love gay people because Jesus loves gay people. And I have a heart for them and I want to reach them. I have this position about marriage. That doesn't mean I'm filled with hate or bigotry. You see how the debate gets framed? You take a position, the opposite gets framed and you get attacked for something you're not even standing for. Chick-fil-A with Truett Cathy, he never said anything negative about gays. He just said that as an individual, as a Christian, he took a stand for traditional marriage. And we have picketing outside of Chick-fil-A saying they're bigots, they're full of hate, they're intolerant. When it's like, wait a second, you're mischaracterizing the debate. This is not honest. This is a form of persecution. Charles Simmons he said, bigotry and intolerance, silenced by argument, endeavors to silence by persecution. In old days by fire and sword, and modern days by the tongue. The secular movement in America, which has preached tolerance for all, finds itself today in their blatant intolerance of the Christians that they disagree with increasingly guilty of the same cardinal sin they've always stood in opposition to. I read many reputable gay bloggers who directly resisted and rejected what happened to the CEO of Mozilla, of saying, this is not the way we handle debate. This is being guilty of the very thing we've accused Christians of being guilty of. Over and over and over again, people have even divided with, as Bill Maher says, a gay mafia. You know, Christians, why are we the only ones that seem targeted? And don't you feel that way? It seems like Christians are the only ones targeted, and I think there's an easy answer. You see, a human resisting God will always be tolerant of a lie, but they will admittedly and adamantly reject the truth. See, that's why Christians are the ones that are targeted. That's why Muslims aren't. That's why Mormons aren't, Jehovah's Witnesses aren't. Why is it that it's only Christians? Well, we stand for the truth, whereas everything else proposes a lie. And you know what? As illustrated by our text, when debate avoids honest dialogue concerning the truth, like was there a debate at all here about Jesus, about the merits of the things that they were standing for? Did, did the, the high priest want them to explain in more biblical context? What? No, there was no honest debate at all here. There was no dialogue seeking the truth. And as a result, it quickly manifested into antagonism towards these men standing for the truth. And Acts 4, the opposition began by being verbal hostility, which is what we find today in America, I believe, but in Acts 5, it translated into physical persecution. Vice President Henry A. Wallace provides an interesting warning, I think, for the church today. He says, a fascist is one whose lust for money and power is combined with such an intensity of intolerance towards those of other races, parties, classes, religions, cultures, regions, and nations as to make him ruthless in his use of deceit or violence 
to attain his end. Though these religious leaders verbally and physically persecuted these men because they rejected the truth of what they were saying, Luke closes this chapter by telling us that daily in the temple and in every house, they didn't cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. These men were beaten, but they refused to back down. These men were filleted, but they stood on conviction. I can imagine that as they go back into the temple with blood-soaked backs and bandages, that their message carried even a greater weight. They continued to proclaim the truth. And please note this. They stood for the truth. They proclaimed the truth. They didn't back down from the truth. And it cost them something. Matter of fact, it cost them everything. I have it listed in C316.tv. I'll let you read through it on your own. But every one of these men standing there, all 12 of them, would die a martyr's death. With the exception of John, he was boiled in oil and, and ended up surviving. So he also was persecuted a great deal. It cost them something, every one of them. They died for the truth. Friends, it's a fact that American society is growing increasingly hostile to the truth of God's word. I'm going to tell you, the hostility is only going to go, grow worse and worse. It will be tougher in the future to be a follower of Christ, to stand for the truth of the gospel, to be verbal about it, to teach these things. There will come a day that I will not be allowed to say things from this pulpit because they will be branded ignorant, intolerant, bigoted, and full of hate. But I will obey God, not man. And if that means we're arrested for it, so be it. If that means we're persecuted for it, so be it. Hey, you know, the church often talks about, we want to be like the first century church. <laughs> then get ready for it. Because it's coming. But I want to ask you this question, and this is where we'll leave it. What will it take for you to stop standing for the truth of God's word? Like, what will it take? Will you cave if your friends unfairly brand you a bigot? Or if the college you're going to says you're a fool? Will you back down if they threaten to fire you from your job or take away your livelihood? Will you cower in fear if society ostracizes you, alienates you, and labels you as intolerant? It would be wise to consider where you draw a line, to consider these things. Because, friend, the day is coming. We're standing for the truth will now begin to cost you something where it's never cost you something in America before. I pray that when that day fully comes, that we're all prepared to not only stand for the truth, but then in the face of persecution, to be able to rejoice that we have been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. And so, Father, with that heavy thought, we allow this to just sink down.